The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Hi, everyone. Welcome to a new Sox Machine Live. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, alongside the managing editor of SoxMachine.com. It's Jim Margulis as we are streaming live on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash socks machine on this wonderful Thursday evening, July 20th in 2023. Quite a bit to talk about in this live stream. The Chicago White Sox just wrapped up their series against the New York Mets. They lost two out of three, but there is some signs of life, especially from Tim Anderson. We'll talk about that. Michael Kopech bounces back. Great to see. But Lucas Giolito has a really rough outing against the New York Mets. And I'm curious on how that could possibly impact his trade market, if there's any impact. We'll also talk about Andrew Vaughn. There's some injury news regarding Andrew Vaughn. Of course, why not? But there's also some trouble and gauging his progress this season against spin, especially against right-handed pitching. So we'll look at how he is progressing in 2023, his third season. And we'll ask the question of where are the trades because the trade market's been pretty slow right now in Major League Baseball. And we'll end with previewing the upcoming series as the Chicago White Sox end this nine-game road trip in Minneapolis. But Jim, the White Sox go to Queens. Game one is wild. Uh, much closer than it probably should have been uh, as the White Sox were down 11-4, to but they make a late rally and lose 11-10. to Justin Verlander, that was like a vintage Verlander start against the White Sox. Uh, just nothing going on for the White Sox offensively other than Luis Roberts' solo home run. And then they win the third game against old friend Jose Quintana. Even got a chance to see another old friend, Omer Naves, for the Mets uh, as he hit a home run against Michael Kopech. So there's a lot going on in this series. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that seems to be the case when the White Sox, whenever they travel to Queens, it seems to be like a memorable midseason series. Any big takeaways for you watching these three games for the White Sox against the Mets this week? Nice to see some signs of life from the offense. You know, having that big 10-run uh, outburst, even though they needed 11 to get the game to extra innings. At least it was... It could have been worse. Could game game could have been over quickly, and it wasn't. So that's fine. Um, also, like the way they converted their scoring opportunities against uh, Jose Quintana early, and then against the bullpen later, like that was nice. So seeing more signs of confidence in the offense, and just you know beyond Andrew Benintendi, like Tim Anderson, as you mentioned, coming around, Luis Robert doing his thing. Uh, Yasmani Grandal looked a little bit refreshed by the all-star break. Maybe he needed a little bit of uh, a recharge and he seems to have gotten that. So, so far, like it's a deeper lineup still has the same problems of not being able to draw walks and, and uh, you know, impatience and whatnot, but at least it's like a better form of what they currently have, which should have been able to score some runs on a more regular basis, except for Tim Anderson being largely absent. Before we get into the White Sox part, the Mets, just real quick. After watching these three games, do you have a better understanding of why the Mets have been struggling this season? 
Well, yeah, I think bullpen is one of them. Just, you know, the starters being weaker than they thought and the bullpen being weaker than they thought and the weaker starters exposing the weaker bullpen around around it goes. Uh, I think that's a big part of it. Defense doesn't look great either, which contributes to the run prevention issues that they have. And uh, it looks like they need a little bit of time to figure out their lineup too, but really it just seems like the pitching or the run prevention not really coming together the way they thought. And, you know, Justin Verlander being hurt, Jose Quintana being hurt, missing time early, uh, didn't help. So that's my general sense of it. And the White Sox looked like a cleaner team. I think that's the other surprising thing is, like, defensively, they were fine. Like, uh, Oscar Colas made some nice plays in the right field, looking a little bit more confident out there. Like, Zach Remillard showing his value, Tim Anderson making plays. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's weird that you come away from a series and the White Sox look – more confident and composed defensively, but there you have it. Even though the Mets won this series, I still feel like they should sell. Like, I don't Mm -hmm. think they're good enough to catch Philadelphia, Miami, or Atlanta in the National League East or run down any of the teams that are ahead of them in the wild card. So I could see some... I could see some Mets being offloaded, especially like Tommy Pham for a lot of teams that are looking for right-handed hitting, especially in the outfield. I could see Tommy Pham being moved. I don't think the Mets are going to sell off big time, but guys that are have expiring contracts i can see the the mets sell which is a far cry from what i expected of this new york mets team before the season so even if even though they won this series against the white Sox, i don't feel great for them speaking going to the chicago white Sox and starting with game one of this series big surprise lucas giolito in that first inning i, I think he would want to redo mm-hmm. because I, I get like the time off excuse. There's a lot of time in between starts. He started the last game for the White Sox before the All-Star break. He completely misses the Atlanta Braves series. So you got that All-Star break plus another four days of rest. And then he makes his starts. There's a lot of time off. And he just looked completely out of rhythm. And I never thought he got into rhythm. I think mm-hmm. Frank Thomas and Ozzy. We're trying to say in the post game that he looked better in the third inning on Giolito only lasted three and two thirds innings against the Mets. Like nothing was really working. The changeup was probably the best looking pitch that he had, but we'll break it down in the stat cast here for Lucas Giolito. Uh, for those that are watching the YouTube stream, for those listening to the podcast, Giolito went three and two thirds innings. He allowed six hits, eight earned runs because three of those six hits were home runs. He walked five and he struck out five. Uh, So he had 11 outs and he allowed 11 base runners. Not a good ratio. And the way Giolito tried to attack the Mets in that game, Grafal had him throw 100 pitches. It was 36 forcing fastballs, 34 changeups, 24 sliders, and a few curveballs, which we don't see too often from Giolito. But out of the four-seam fastballs, the Mets swung at that pitch 13 times, and they only whiffed twice. And they swung at 12 sliders, and they only whiffed twice. So the Mets were on the four-seam fastball and slider for Lucas Giolito. Again, Giolito had more success with the changeup as he had a 39% whiff rate against Mets hitters with that pitch. So out of all the SatCast data, the changeup's the only one that stands out in a positive way for Lucas Giolito. Mm-hmm. And it does raise the question, like, I don't think it was such a terrible start that, oh my gosh, Lucas Giolito has no trade market. Mm-hmm. But after that particular start, I could see teams waiting to see on how he bounces back on regular rest on Sunday against the Minnesota Twins. Like, I really was wondering if Giolito had a great start against the Mets or just a regular start against the Mets because teams need starting pitching so bad that he could be dealt shortly after Tuesday's start. But I think everyone's going to wait until Sunday. Yeah, if you go back to the chart, like the fastballs, it was 13 swings, but only like nine takes, I believe, or sorry, six takes. So six uh, called strikes out of 36 pitches. Like he was spraying his fastball. And, you know, like a lot of just 
non-competitive pitches. It wasn't a case where like his best stuff was getting beat. His best stuff wasn't there, especially when you factor in command, like velocity down a little bit, but within like the standard deviation range of just ups and downs for a pitcher, it was just really his command. And I can see like the case of it being, you know, maybe he did find a better rhythm, but by that time fatigue was kicking in because he had to throw so many pitches early that all of a sudden, like the sixth inning, seventh inning flatness showed up in the third and fourth instead. But uh, yeah, I can see like, given that the market really isn't moving in general, like teams can wait a little bit. Um, Sometimes you have the teams making the case where like, we need every start possible. And perhaps like if he did have a good start, they'd say like, I want one more of that G Lito start that we normally get by waiting until July 31st or whatever date they, they determine. But in this case, like, yeah, just might be a little bit of wait and see because we have seen him, have starts where he gets his butt kicked and bounces back just fine. Like I'm thinking that Boston massacre start on the uh, morning start a couple of years ago, like that was pretty terrible, but then that turned out to be an aberration. Uh, but with, you know, nothing moving, like teams can just say like, yeah, I just want to make sure it's an aberration. Cause he's had like last year and uh, the, year that was the uh, subject of commercials of him being the worst pitcher in baseball. Like he's had some, some extended lows. So I think it's worth the due diligence process for a team saying like, let's just make sure he's not falling into that unless like the market all of a sudden heats up, but you know, he's not the only rental pitcher on the markets. Uh, he's not the only pitcher on the market. Like, you know, they could, teams could just be looking beyond the rental and look for guys with uh, more than a year left. But uh, yeah, just the, his tendency to, take uh, big dips and stay there, even if it is just, you know, a couple of years out of the last five, is still probably a little bit too present to feel like, yeah, it's nothing. <laughs> Especially if you're like, you know, if you have d- choices and you have like 10 days or something like that to actually like make up your mind, like may as well take your time unless all of a sudden three pitchers come off the board and he's like the best one left. What I think helps is that the following afternoon, the game between the Baltimore Orioles and Los Angeles Dodgers. I was watching that game. And in that first inning, my, my fears were calmed down. (laughs) That was a really rough first inning for Baltimore and Dodgers pitching. That was Julio Arias making the start for the Dodgers and Dean Kramer making the start for Baltimore and both of those guys struggling out of the gate. So I don't think Giolito's market was, is going to be impacted that much. It's just, more of a timing thing. Like if he was great against the Mets on Tuesday, maybe he gets dealt in like the next 24 hours. But I I think teams are going to wait until Sunday and the more teams wait to pull the trigger and meet Hans asking price for Lucas Giolito, more opportunity for other teams, other sellers to emerge and other starting pitchers to come into the market. And that could possibly complicate things as far as moving Lucas Giolito. So hopefully against Minnesota, we'll talk about that series later in the show. Lucas Giolito bounces back. Speaking of bouncing back, Michael Kopech started today's game and looked much better against the New York Mets than he did against the Atlanta Braves. And it was a very good sign to see as we take a look at the StatCast data for those watching on YouTube, for those listening to the podcast. Michael Kopech only threw 89 pitches, 60 four-seam fastballs. Very fastball-heavy from Lucas Giolito. His max pitch velocity on the four-seamer was 97 miles per hour. He averaged 95, which is good. His slider, he threw that 21 times, and he threw eight change-ups, mixed it in. Out of the 21 swings against the fastball, Kopech only generated five whiffs. But he did get 14 called strikes with the four-seam fastball. So I think the Mets hitting strategy against Michael Kopech, Jim, was to wait him out. And with him being aggressive early and living in the strike zone really helped out because he went five and two-thirds innings, only allowed two hits, one earned run, which was a solo home run. He did walk four batters, but he had five strikeouts. And like I mentioned, this is a much better start than the last one we saw in Atlanta. Yeah, it seemed like he contained his control problems uh, to individual hitters. Um, we've seen, like, like say, go back to Giolito start, and he had uh, just deep counts and walks and, and missed pitches to basically everybody. In this case, like, Kopech had a tendency to lose a batter, but shaking it off, correcting his mechanics, and limiting it to, like, that one walk per inning or that one bad batter per inning. So that's, I think, where the 
strategy of just like waiting for balls. I think probably he might have confused the scouting report a little bit by saying like, uh, yeah, I'm crazy. I'm all over the place. Ha ha ha. And then like all of a sudden, like correcting a batter in all of a sudden they're down. Oh, two. So that worked. And, you know, his velocity like down a half tick. But like, again, within the standard deviation of normal and his control was in the standard deviation of normal, even if he walked for like it was fine. I think what you'd like to see, given that we've seen Kopech be terrible, now we've seen Kopech have this kind of ordinary good starts. But, you know, maybe uh, if like Tim Anderson doesn't catch that Tommy Pham rocket and like turn into a double play, that maybe it's a case where like there's a crooked number and it starts shorter. Um, that's a case where the defense helped him out. But I think it'd be nice in short order to have like a Michael Kopech outstanding start where that fastball is just pushing hitters around. He's getting swings and misses, pop-ups, uh, really doing nothing with it just to balance out the, you know, terrible starts on one side. And then like the elite fastball starts on the other side, because if he settles into this where he's, you know, good five to six innings uh, once in a while, you know, but uh, dragged down by these two, three, in this case, two thirds of an inning start his last time out. Like that makes it a little bit harder to feel like you can pencil him in. So I'm hoping that there's, you know, if he's going to have these wild variations, Hopefully he'll get back to the form, like just having wild variations in the positive direction where like he looks like a world beater and nobody can touch him. Yeah. Kopech's next probable start is at home Wednesday night against the Chicago Cubs in that two game crosstown series between the Cubs and the White Sox. So we'll see. Uh, and I think that's just kind of like the holding pattern right now with Michael Kopech and we would all love more consistency, but for at least the 2023 season, I'm just preparing myself again, preparing for the worst, hoping for the best with Michael Kopech. Like maybe tonight he looks like that he should be in the bullpen, but be prepared that he could surprise you and be an effective starter. And we've seen earlier this season, especially against Kansas City and Cleveland, where Michael Kopech was elite. It's just like the results could vary greatly for Michael Kopech and against the Mets. When he was aggressive at the strike zone, he looks a lot better. So I, I like this strategy the White Sox had for Michael Kopech, and it did catch the Mets batters off guard because I think that they were going to expect the wild Kopech, and if he can command his fastball like he did, I, I like his chances against the Cubs at home next week. And uh, again, we'll preview that series later this weekend on the Monday podcast. As a, I don't know if anyone's excited anymore. Uh, in Chicago about the White Sox Cubs series, but we'll try our best to drum up excitement for Woo. that Crosstown Classic. Woo! Another guy that's bouncing back and showing some life post-All-Star break has been Tim Anderson. And you wrote about Anderson on SoxMachine.com, Jim, and I highly recommend everyone getting a, uh, reading Jim's work at his, his column regarding Tim Anderson and how Anderson is showing life. In the last seven games for the White Sox, Tim Anderson is nine for 29 and that's a 310 batting average. Uh, not a lot of extra base hits still. Uh, his slugging percentage during that stretch is just 345. But he is showing more life. He is getting more singles. Again, it is nine hits in his last 29 at bats. And is this a sign things are turning around, Jim, to the point? that I think you were trying to make the case that maybe we should consider seriously Tim Anderson gets moved before the deadline. It's possible just because the market's pretty slim both now and then the off season. So when it comes to like the winter, I think there might be motivation for teams to try to win the lottery. You know, if they feel like they're gambling a little bit on Anderson's use, the, uh, the rest of the season, like at least like they're saying like, well, if we win this bet, we'll also have our shortstop taken care of for next year right. or second baseman, whatever, however they want to use them. Like that option, I think has some value, especially like if it doesn't work out, then like, meh, just, uh, you know, cut them loose. And so I think that that gets baked into his trade value a little bit. Also like, makes it easier for the White Sox to you know, have a price to meet because like if he is coming back and teams are lowballing him, say like, yeah, we'll give you like some 20 year old a ball prospect. Who's like 21st in our system. Like, no, we're not that desperate. Like we have uh, at bats that need to be taken in uh, next year's team. We have a whole winter to trade them. We have like a whole market that we can, perhaps build up if he's not that great or sorry, if he bounces back to life in August and September and looks even better than he did in July, like 
they have White Sox have options too. So I think there's reason for teams to up their offers a little bit. Also some leverage for the White Sox to say like, yeah, how bad do you want them? How bad do you want that option for, for next season? So that's uh, worth seeing. I think my biggest question with Anderson is like, we're seeing the pulled line drives to the left side, which I think is one big part of his game, even if most of his homers go the opposite field. I think my question is, and next homestand might be able to tell a little bit better since his, you know, the home uh, ballpark and the home like wind patterns are so much more friendly to his uh, right field power, his right field fly balls and other parks are. But I just want to see like, can he challenge the wall for his first homer of the season. Because like looking at spray charts in previous years and how many homers went to right field, if that baseball is really killing right-handed power or like right-handed opposite field power, I should say, then, you know, one, you can understand why he went to driveline to try to get tap into his pole power because that's not happening for him. And also I think that just kind of make, you know, even if the White Sox hold on to him and try to wait till next winter uh, to deal him, like that could ultimately cap just how interested teams are because like he might be a single digit home run guy. If those right field home runs have just kind of disappeared on him because of the way the baseball flies now. Yeah. I, when you talk about spray charts, it makes me a little sad because when you look at his 2019 and 2020 spray charts, and I know it was a super bouncy ball in 2019, but the majority of his home runs were pulled. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know what led to the strategic decision for Tim Anderson to go more into right center and more opposite field with this power. But when you look at his spray charts for 2019, 2020, where that was his best offensive seasons by far, he pulled the ball in the air, especially against sliders from right-handed pitching. I wish he would go back to that version of Tim Anderson, but maybe it requires him to be on a different team and him having more of an open mind and the adjustments that team would have for Tim Anderson. But on the topic of possibly trading Tim Anderson, do you think the White Sox have much of an appetite to actually move Tim Anderson prior to the deadline? I don't think so. Um, I think it's more of a case of just the writing being on the wall in terms of their aspirations for next year, what they feel like they can build a team towards if they're cutting so much payroll or if they have to take a step back or they have three, possibly four rotation spots to fill that like they just may get a jump on dealing him. I think that conversation was more open in May when he figured like a turnaround's coming, right? Turnaround's coming. He's going to hit a homer. He's going to like, he's going like the, the ball's going to start flying for him again. He's going to be one of the top 10 shortstops in baseball again. And that just didn't happen. So like, I think that's why, you know, it's more, the circumstances of like Anderson's numbers being terrible for most of the season and just this turnaround being too late arriving to probably make uh, enough of an impact on teams minds for July 31st or the, the start of August and, and liking, you know, their chances of getting that kind of productivity the rest of the way. But I think the, just the conversation kind of like similar to Dylan cease. Like when you talk about him and how most pitchers of his caliber are moved with like, more than one year of control left. You know, they tend to be moved like when there's at least one full season beyond the season of acquisition that teams can plan around. I think, uh, you know, White Sox are reaching a point where like, man, next year is it. And then uh, they probably have to go in a different direction, not just because Anderson may want more money, but because of his skill set and, you know, being in his thirties, like how well is that going to age? Uh, probably a case where like uh, you do have to think of a different shortstop. So that, that's why I think like it made sense to think about it and the White Sox should still have an open mind about it. But you know, if it's, it gets to the point where like teams are just like lowballing them or saying like, yeah, well, let's see how desperate are to move them. They shouldn't be desperate to move them now. Yeah. If I, I'm a betting man, I would bet that Tim Anderson does not get dealt prior to the trade deadline. But what would change my mind is if someone starting shortstop gets hurt, mm-hmm. like the Dodgers, if the Dodgers have another significant injury at shortstop, or maybe the Dodgers are trying to think of getting both Giolito and Tim Anderson. They've done that in the past. Uh, you wrote about that, like yep. the Scherzer Trey Turner deal. The, the Dodgers have done that in the past where they've gotten a starting pitcher and a starting shortstop with the same deal. Maybe, maybe they would be interested in doing that. Who knows? But at the very least, it is nice to see Tim Anderson 
start building up to something. It's a lot of singles still, but again, he's 9 for his last 29 in the last seven games. He is showing some life. Let's see if he continues this weekend in Minneapolis. Uh, before we get into our next topic, a little site news here for our Socks Machine store. We have new gear. We have a new t-shirt. I've been asked about this because I've worn the prototype at White Sox games. Everybody knows our affinity gym about wild pitch offense and how much we love it. So we do have a t-shirt now since everyone's been asking me to make these uh, because of the t-shirt that I have. The I Heart Wild Pitch Offense. So if you love wild pitch offense as much as we do at Sox Machine, you can now show that love in the Sox Machine shop. You can buy the shirt available. So go to SoxMachine.com, click on the store, and you can purchase the new I Heart Wild Pitch Offense shirt. It can be cool just like me at White Sox games. And when there's wild pitch offense at home, you can show everyone your shirt and uh, show the love of wild pitch offense we do still want to sponsor that i still want to sponsor a run scoring wild pitch just like the feldco walk you know can't be that much because it's not that frequent but i'd like to capitalize on that uh those opportunities when they present themselves we have also joked about sponsoring every pitch visit uh, <laughs> during the season. Um, yeah, I think that would be a little too much money. But I do like the idea of Jay Spadetti having to read our sponsored ad for every wild pitch offense, especially to walk off with. That would be awesome. What a win for the White Sox. And here's the sponsor <laughs> ad. That's great television broadcasting. You don't want to get Marquette Banks uh, copywriter just to write the really clunky uh 60 word uh, promo that talks about neighborhoods and fun rewards like fraud protection, <laughs> like peak market bank of just really like you need an editor and didn't have one and went with it. And Steve Stone had to read it every single time. You could just hear the contempt dripping from his voice when he talked about fun rewards. Pause. Like I really want we need a promo that Steve Stone hates. <laughs> we could think of something. Yeah. We can think of something. So if you want to aid us in being able to have enough money to buy sponsored ads, you can also help us out at patreon.com. <laughs> so we can build up those funds. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors. According to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, the next topic, a little bit of injury news because it's the White Sox. Somebody's always hurt. Uh, this comes from Daryl Van Scowen of the Chicago Sun-Times. He initially tweeted out that Andrew Vaughn was getting an X-ray on his left foot today. Manager Pedro Grafal said, quote, we're not anticipating anything wrong, but he was pretty sore, end quote. And then later on, Daryl Van Scowen reported that the X-ray for Andrew Vaughn is negative. He has a left foot bruise. He is day-to-day -day just like everyone else. And Andrew Vaughn, I think we need to have a little bit of a conversation regarding mm -hmm. Andrew Vaughn. Because this is his third season. And this surprised me. I was starting a deep dive data dump. Here's something that I've been monitoring for a while now with Andrew Vaughn, and that is Vaughn's trouble against the spin, especially from right-handed pitching, because Vaughn's going to see more right-handed pitching than left-handed pitching over the course of a season. And this is something that he desperately needed to improve upon. And here's a stat that I couldn't believe. Andrew Vaughn's got more career plate appearances than Luis Robert. Did you know that, Jim? 
I didn't, but it's surprising and then not. Right, because of injuries. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's why Vaughn's got more plate appearances than Robert. But technically speaking, Andrew Vaughn has more experience at the plate than Luis Robert Jr. Now, far cry in offensive production this year between Luis Robert and Andrew Vaughn. And for, I'm not going to do a numbers dump for a podcast listeners. That's not very attractive listening. So for those that are watching on YouTube, you'll be able to see as far as some of the visuals that I have created for Vaughn against the spin. And I'm just going to generalize this for the audio listeners. So Vaughn in his rookie year hit 155 batting average against sliders from right-handed pitching. And that improved a little bit in 2022, but it was still, he was batting 185 against sliders from right-handed pitching. And it's clear this is his kryptonite at the plate. It has improved a little bit in 2023. He's hitting 224 against sliders from right-handed pitching. But the one thing, even though there has been progress year over year, is that Vaughn's only slugging 293 against sliders from right-handers. And he's now whiffing 38.8% of the time. And his average exit velocity against sliders is 89 miles per hour, where his fastball average exit velocity is like 95 miles per hour. So here we are, the third season in. I wanted to see progress from Andrew Vaughn against spin. And to make things worse for him and all the batters in Major League Baseball, uh, the sweeper data is just uglier. So if a right-handed pitcher throws the slider with more horizontal movement, uh, Andrew Vaughn's batting 129 against sweepers. So if you if you are watching a White Sox game and Andrew Vaughn's in the lineup and you see a right-handed pitcher on the mound and Steve Stone or the color commentator says that this pitcher has a sweeper, that is really bad news for Andrew Vaughn because he's whiffing 41.7% of the time against sweepers and the last stat that really shocked me this year Andrew Vaughn is batting 188 when he's ahead in the count and he's slugging just 400 Andrew Vaughn is posting his best numbers when the count is even like the first pitch or 1-1 or 2-2 that is when Vaughn is doing his most damage when he's ahead He's hitting 188. Like that's that's just weird to me. And when the pitcher's ahead, he's hitting 250. And he's got a higher slugging percentage. He's slugging 404 when he's behind in the count. So just some really weird stuff coming from Andrew Vaughn. And, and again, Vaughn right now is dealing with a foot bruise. So that's not going to make things better. But this is his third season. He's got over 1,400 plate appearances. And I go back to my draft report back in 2019 when I highlighted a concern that I had that I don't know on how Vaughn is going to handle breaking pitches when he becomes a professional. He didn't get a lot of chance in the minor leagues to show that he made improvement. He gets shoves into the major leagues. And here we are now in 2023, Jim. And I am concerned to the point that I don't know if he's ever going to get better against spin that he may just only be a fastball hitter, and that's really going to limit his offensive production. Yeah. Next slide. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's... Uh, part of it feels like, you know, you mentioned that, you know, Vaughn has more plate appearances in the majors than, than Robert has, but Robert has, like, three to four times the experience in the minors. So professionally, right. they're probably even if you weight them um, or Robert slightly ahead, but you know, just the hard earned lessons, some of which Robert had to learn the minors like Vaughn never really had that opportunity. Like it's all been all like at the major league level against the world's best pitching against the world's best sliders, like figuring out year after year. And just, there's some incremental progress take sweepers out of it, maybe not, but just it's, you know, we're watching it. We're just kind of sitting there just being like, okay, a little bit better, a little bit better, but also clocks ticking both comes the White Sox contention windows, the way the White Sox have prioritized him, uh, the way his own, you know, he is going to be entering arbitration. He's going right. to be uh, like getting older, you know, and, and who knows like how he'll age <laughs> if his old player skills aren't really coming up right now. Like, uh, and, and if he doesn't look, he's gonna be drawing a ton of walks or what have you. And if he's not running all that well, uh, like 
how is he going to age? Uh, it's kind of scary to think about. So it seems like the White Sox pretty much thought he was ready-made as a hitter. The other thing I'll, I guess I'll go back to is like, same thing with Tim Anderson, opposite field homers. Like I think they counted on more opposite field homers from him. And he doesn't really have either the swing or the levers to get the ball out to right field, like the, the plate coverage on the outside corner or just off the plate. Like maybe he just doesn't have the reach that other hitters do in getting that kind of just leverage with your swing to flip the ball out to right field. So if he needs to like rip the ball more then it makes sense that like he needs the ball closer to him to get that, you know, barrel around into it to lift the ball, like to center field and, and left. So it could be a case where like, you know, his swing looked like it was capable of all fields power, but the ball change all of a sudden you need a little bit more strength uh, and, and just natural like, exit velocity and backspin on the ball to get over the fences at the major leagues. And that kind of takes away a big part of his game. And now he's trying to sell out for power. And if he has to sell out for power more and really make his power, his swing more power oriented, then that probably changes just exactly what he can cover. I know you don't like war, especially when it comes to first baseman, but Vaughn has played over 300 games. He's almost at 350. Yeah, he's at 355 games in his career. And his career war total is minus 0.8 on fan graphs. Like, he doesn't hit yeah. well enough to overcome his other shortfalls. And Matt in the YouTube comments section <laughs> wrote to us, Andrew, you can't run, play defense, or hit at a demonstrable above-average level. So what would you say you do here? And... Matt raises a good point because Yohan Makata was not in the Charlotte Knights lineup tonight on Thursday. And it makes me wonder if we could possibly see Makata this weekend in Minneapolis. And when Makata comes, I don't think they're going to ride him on the bench. I think Makata would play and he'd play at third base. And then it raises the question, what do you do with Jake Berger? Do you DH him? Well, you kind of can't because Eloy needs to play. And if they're worried about his groin, well, he's going to be the DH. He's not going to play in the outfield. Mm -hmm. So suddenly you don't have a spot for Jake Berger. And this is where I would make the argument that maybe with the foot bruise, you give more time off to Andrew Vaughn in this upcoming series against Minneapolis. You have Jake Berger grab the first baseman glove and move over from third to first. But going into the offseason, man, I... Vaughn's just like inviting this conversation of who would you rather have your regular first baseman be Andrew Vaughn or Jake Berger. And what kind of drives me wild with all of these posts about the white Sox being sellers, like all these articles and blogs and columns that the white Sox have untouchables and Andrew Vaughn's one of the untouchables. And I know we've asked this question many times, Jim, but why, like what mm -hmm. are they seeing that we don't like the data doesn't lie on baseball savant and we're not twisting it to fit some type of narrative that we have everyone can see that this guy struggles against spin and spins more important than ever and to compare again between vaughn and luis robert yeah luis robert has a high whiff rate against sliders but luis robert is batting over 270 against sliders and he's slugging well over 500. Mm -hmm. as a matter of fact against right-handed pitching this year the White Sox as a team have hit 15 homers against sliders. Luis Robert has eight of them. And he just demonstrated Wednesday night against Justin Verlander on a pitcher's pitch, a slider in the outside corner, and Robert demolished it. So I, I know I sigh, but they spent the third overall pick on Andrew Vaughn. Mm -hmm. He was supposed to hit. And I've always worried that maybe the White Sox in their poor planning would break what was supposed to be one of their top hitting prospects. And that concern becomes more real with every passing day. Like I need a hot month for Andrew Vaughn to feel better about myself regarding Vaughn, but I don't know what he is in the upcoming future. And I still don't understand why he's untouchable. Yeah. I'm not a swing doctor, but like when you watch Luis Robert hit a pitch and you watch Andrew Vaughn hit a pitch and you see like the, uh, you know, Robert's ability to flip a slider out to left field and like Vaughn tries the same thing and ends up 15 feet shorter on the warning track. Same thing of like opposite field drives, the way Roberts flies just kind of carry and carry and carry and, and Vaughn just kind of don't. So like 
to me, that kind of sums up the whole just swing leverage and the levers that uh, you know, Robert has with the longer arms reach uh, bat path that like Vaughn doesn't have. And uh, the way that power doesn't come as easily to him. And one thing I'm, I'm looking at Vaughn's numbers here for July, 188, 204, 208. Uh, his slash line, 15 strikeouts, zero walks in 49 plate appearances. Um, and the thing is like walks had come back to him a little bit and, you know, he had a decent like uh, divide with his walks and strikeouts to where like that part of his game seemed to be coming along. Like the guy who uh, makes plate appearances a little more challenging to pitchers. Like he was showing that and now it's disappeared on him and his tendency for second half fades um, makes me think like, yeah, put him on the injured list. I know the white Sox hate doing that to anybody who doesn't have to miss. Like if they're not, if they're going to be uh anything less than 10 days out, like they will not put him on the uh, injured list. They'd rather have him sit for eight days rather than put him on 10 day IL. But I think I'd rather see Vaughn in the injured list right now to give him a breather. Like he seems to wear down and if he has like a, you know, identifiable physical issue, you can hang a, uh, an injured list in time to where nobody's going to be questioning it. Like, mm-hmm. Why not? So why not the added benefit? You need to play Berger anyway. Um, if, if he's playing well, you need to play Jimenez. If he's playing well, you have to protect his legs. So, yeah, I mean, give him those opportunities. They're, you know, in due time, like probably Jimenez will get hurt again and those at-bats will come back. So you only have to wait a little bit. Moncada might get hurt again because I'm not buying that his back is all the way back. Mm-hmm. A lot of ways to get guys in the lineup. So Vaughn has to be the one who takes a seat. Uh, you can probably do without like insulting him or like giving up on him. But yeah, I really don't get the, you know, untouchable parts. And yeah, I've seen, you know, people in the Sox be seeing comments saying like, well, maybe he's not like untouchable in the classic sense, but like the white Sox aren't going to move him for anything less than his value. But like, that's basically everybody. And like, yeah, <laughs> like Moncada, they won't like his value is very low, but they won't move him for less than his value. Just teams like haven't, he has no value. So teams aren't offering anything. Um, like that's kind of just uh, when you mention somebody's untouchable in the same breath as Dylan Cease and Luis Roberts and even Eloy Jimenez, although I'd be open to dealing him too, based on his un- inability to stay on the field or provide defensive value. Uh, you know, I-, I don't think he's that far away from Vaughn to where like, you know, he's safe and Vaughn isn't. Um, yeah. It just seems like it is a case where they really want the guy they drafted third overall to be that guy. And yeah, I guess fortunately, they're, they probably haven't passed up any killer deals or like any awesome trade windows uh, to where like they could have moved him like Gordon Beckham with the years he was like a top prospect or top young player. And then he kind of faded into like a defense first infielder uh, utility guy. Like there wasn't that window to where like trading Vaughn made a whole lot of sense. So they can probably just keep waiting to see if like he catches fire and then like see what happens. But the question is whether he catches fire, I think is an open one, especially like if he has another year where he fades in the second half and just hasn't proven that he can actually survive a six month grind and provide offense that you expect from a first baseman. He's 25, Jim. Yeah. We're talking about a 25 year old that's struggling to survive the major league baseball grind in his yeah. season. Well, I mean, like it's, Carlos Rodon, kind of the same way, like they rushed in the majors and did not actually have him uh, like develop a routine, you know, develop like healthy habits that kept him functional for six months. Like he didn't learn that until like his back was against the wall and he was non-tendered. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and like Vaughn is kind of the same thing. Like they just rushed him through like he did not. He had like 50 something games in the minors, uh, you know, his first year, but just like he had not proven he could survive a six month grind. And he seems like he's just getting by, like, you know, nursing back injury, yeah, an injury or uh, trying to battle through leg issues, like time and time again, like dealing with issues with, with his base. And, uh, you know, maybe that would manifest itself even if you're doing a full season, the minors, but like, because he's fighting this two front war between like doing his best against major league pitching and also, you know, managing his body for, longer and longer seasons for him as he plays more and more uh like it's hard to separate one from the other and maybe they go hand in hand and just it's going to take like another situation like Rodon experience where like by the very end it'll click and part of the reason didn't click is because the White Sox you know bypass opportunities to block him and make him earn his way up and and didn't 
Yeah, if he is untouchable, if he is part of their core, if they're hoping that they're going to turn this around in 2024 or even in 2025, this is a problem. You got to figure out Andrew Vaughn. You have to assist him here that he stays on the field. And not only does he stay on the field, he's an impact bat because he's not an impact bat. And he's not an impact bat because every right-handed pitcher and every team in Major League Baseball knows that after you throw a fastball and if he doesn't put it into play, it's spin city, baby. Just throw sliders and sweepers at him. He can't hurt you. And he's he's got a lot of work to do in the offseason. But to your point, he goes into arbitration next year. He's in his fourth year of team control. And then it's his fifth year. And then it's his sixth year. And that's his walk year. Like, we're halfway through the team control for Andrew Vaughn. We still don't know how good he is, but he hasn't been very good in his first <laughs> or, three years of the majors. Yeah, like, or we hope crazy. we don't know how good he is, I think is the way I'd put it. Like, I hope he's better than this, but progress has been difficult to maintain. Right. So we can throw away all the excuses. Well, he played in the outfield last year. That's not, no, that's not a viable excuse. There's something else going on. And I, I think it is this data. It's this spin. It's how the teams are attacking him. And Vaughn is still having difficulty countering that or making the adjustments to be able to do that. And I think that's a big reason why Luis Robert is having the season that he's having because he's always known, been known to crush velocity. And now if you're a righty, sliders aren't even that effective against Luis Robert in this time. So moving away from the White Sox talk real quick, and we've been kind of hinting at this, and we've had some good comments in the YouTube channel that I'm going to go back to. Uh, so Matt put out this comment regarding the Major League Baseball trade market and posed the question, a bunch of teams still decided between buying and selling. Are the White Sox missing an opportunity by not selling now before the market is flooded? And Jim, the way I approach this topic is, as a seller, you have a price point in mind for the players that you are putting out to the market. And until you get that type of return or an offer from another team that satisfies what you will be asking for, that determines how much you move. The only way you're going to make movement in this market from a White Sox perspective is suddenly step back from your requested ask from teams is this the time they should do that? I mean, based on Matt's question, should they step back a little bit from their request or should they stay firm? I think it depends. Like, you know, Tim Anderson, no, like no reason to sell him for anything, you know, trade him for anything less than he's worth. Like they have control over him with the option. They can, you know, they, ha they have a whole next winter and a whole next deadline to deal him. So like this is not do or die. Uh, Lance Lynn, another guy who like, you know, his market is very limited. His, you know, he doesn't seem like he is likely to start a postseason game unless like he's facing an all right-handed lineup. So like, you know, his option, probably not that valuable. So yeah, probably deal him like Lucas Chilito, I think is like the one where he's worth something and no other team is moving. Like, you, like you need buyers who are offering a worthwhile price. And if the White Sox trade him for like a off top 100 list just to make a move, like no one's going to be happy with that. So like, I think, you know, Rick Hahn's reputation precedes himself as somebody who doesn't close deals as somebody who can't find the price he wants to, you know, to uh, meet and just gets gun shy and, and nobody moves in the, in the same roster rolls over and nothing changes. But I think, you know, Lynn, yeah, move him, save the money. Uh, Anderson, no, Chile don't know. I think that's kind of how I look at it. Like if team wants to take Lance Lynn and they're offering like somebody, like whether it's a live arm, whether it's a, uh, you know, teenager who's like off the radar, maybe another Fernando Tatis Jr. Who knows? But like, sure, lottery ticket, go for it, uh, go nuts. But players of worth, I don't see, if teams are deciding whether between buying and selling, like you need more buyers then. Like if they're not, convinced they want to buy like you can't shove lucas giolito i'm saying like uh how about a sale how about a sale like you know he's <laughs> he's worth a certain price like so i think like yeah um th that's why like it gets impatient like i'm i'm also worried that you know 
the White Sox will tie their own hands. But mm-hmm. yeah, Giolito is worth something, and yeah, the savings is not is, is nominal with him. Uh, the uh, value he provides to their team is uh, rather strong, and also the White Sox had the fallback option of the qualifying offer to at least get something at the very end if nothing happens to where like they do have the slightest bit of leverage and they may as well exercise that in a way that like Lance Lynn, probably no leverage there. So to your point about, you know, the White Sox announcing a sale, uh, my first job was working at Kmart and I would have to do the blue light special reads Mm -hmm. uh, over the intercom system. So it just, a little comical to me, be funny, be like, attention MLB shoppers. There's a blue light special at 35th and Shields in Chicago. You need a starting pitcher? We've got a couple. (laughs) Back in the day, reading Pepsi ads, five for $10. Perfect for your 4th of July barbecue, you know. (laughs) Final sale. (laughs) No returns, as is. Not refundable. (laughs) Uh, There have been some trades back in the day. No, to your other point, though, the concern and I'm starting to see it grow a little bit on social media with every passing day that the White Sox don't trade anyone. I think people are getting this feeling and I, I, I sense it and I feel a little bit too. Could this be a repeat of last year's trade market and nobody gets moved? And it just raises a lot of questions of like, what are we doing here? Like, and it invites speculation keyword mm-hmm. Is Rick Hahn really in charge? Like, who's in charge again with the White Sox? Is he allowed yeah. to make trades? Who knows? You know, it's a, it's yeah. just a weekend at Bernie's type of situation. Yeah, the good news is that Hahn has been more, um, more active when he sold versus when he's buying. Like, I'm thinking of like the Jose Quintana trade. People got nervous about that, and eventually he made it happen. And the price was uh, like the the Cubs met his price, and a lot of people were antsy about carrying Quintana into the season and waiting until July to move him, but they moved him. And like, even though that trade is, you know, not worked out the way White Sox thought and like with Jimenez winning like silver sluggers and hitting 40 homers and, uh, you know, being an all-star, like it's still a very good trade. Like maybe his best deadline work, uh, his best like rebuild work. Like that's, you know, that's an outstanding trade. Uh, he did move, Todd Frazier, uh, you know, the return for that one, not as good, but like he didn't move him. Miguel Gonzalez, they move him. So like whenever it doesn't make sense to carry a guy, like those guys end up getting moved typically. Um, So I think something's going to happen, but yeah, that's why I'm not getting too anxious. Even if like Hans reputation does precede it himself. And also like, we don't exactly know whether the white Sox will talk themselves into trying to do more at this roster and run it back because they keep, getting stuck on this roster, even though uh, there have been cries for help for the last couple of years in terms of what this team needs and the White Sox not doing what this team needs. Well, our last topic in this episode of Sox Machine Live, before we hand it off for those that are watching the live stream at eight o'clock, you can watch our friends from the 108 on youtube.com slash from the 108 as they'll start their show. Our last topic, we preview the upcoming series against the Minnesota Twins as the Chicago White Sox arrived to Minneapolis for the final time in 2023 thanks to the ballot schedule and uh looking at the American League Central standings here the Minnesota Twins are 50 and 48 and they still lead the Central by two games over the Cleveland Guardians which the Guardians I have no idea how they're hovering around 500 but they're 47 and 49 now despite the injuries that they've had to Tristan McKenzie and now Shane Bieber Detroit is 44-52. They're five games back. And there's the White Sox at 41-57. and They're nine games back of the Minnesota Twins. So even if the White Sox sweep the Twins this weekend, they're still going to be six games back of Minnesota in first place. It just raises the question, though, when you look at the AL Central standings, Jim, like, what in the world are the Twins doing here? Like, why are they not running away with this division there are so many flaws right now poor cleveland is hurt detroit is detroit and the white Sox are the white Sox. and the royals are prepping to have a top three pick in next year's mlb draft and here are the royals i mean the twins are still two games above 500 but they're only two games ahead of the guardians and we're approaching the 100 game mark like they're obviously the most fit team and the strongest team this division 
to win the AL Central, but they have yet to run away from everyone. And this was the same type of position they were in last year. And then September, Cleveland got insanely hot and ran away with the AL Central. Like, I'm a bit concerned for the Twins here. They keep Cleveland hanging around. Could it happen again, just like last year, which Cleveland wins it at the last minute? I think with Cleveland, the one thing that keeps me from, like, jumping on them is, like, Bieber's out, McKenzie, you know, just, like, their top-line pitchers, their Cy Young candidate pitchers aren't quite there, which is what's been bolstering them in the past to be, like, the as strong as they are despite not being that impressive on paper um with the twins my concern about them is like they had lights out pitching in the first half now you're seeing like sunny gray have a couple rough outings in a row so maybe he's regressing to be like that era closer to four than three guy that he's been Uh, also another guy who like you know doesn't normally pitch past six innings all that often joe ryan regressing some pablo lopez had the really hot starts got the extension now he's cooling off like they're pitching that didn't seem to be as strong as it started. Like it's fading a little bit to so be ordinary, still. Okay. Still formidable. Like look at a three game series of starters and say like, yeah, the white Sox had their work cut out for them, like beating these starters, but they're showing like that they aren't world beaters, that they aren't like uh, all stars yet. And uh, when they were pitching as well as they were, the offense wasn't there. Now you see like Carlos Cray heating up the offense, starting to figure out like a lineup a little bit. Max Kepler heating up, uh, Julian coming in and, and posting some impressive rookie numbers that other Twins rookies haven't been able to do. And now the pitching's fading a little bit. So I think it's a little bit of whack-a-mole in terms of what their problem is and not being able to put it all together and have that like killer winning streak that puts them securely over 500 puts a big cushion between first and second place. The White Sox did fall 10 games back briefly. So like, I think that's kind of the the red line for the White Sox being like, nope, not going to happen. <laughs> I think you can officially pull the plug on that. But I think like, as far as Cleveland goes, um, like just Terry Francona is really good at making a lot with a little. And that's, I think like his biggest skill why the guardians have been so good. The front office works really well with him to figure out like who he needs and how much that guy can play and still be helpful. And uh, that's why I think like, I don't see who does that for the guardians now, but we've had that question before, like how are the guardians going to do this? And they do it. So yeah, I think the uh, twins and, and me not being a big fan of Rocco Baldelli, just as a strategist and somebody who, leverages talent to the way that like Francona leverages talent. Um, like I don't see the twins running away with it, even though like, yeah, they, they should in terms of like who's actually available and who's contributing. The pitching problems for the white Sox in this series are going to have their best. Lance Lynn will make the start on Friday night. That's a seven ten PM central time start on Saturday. Dylan cease will get the ball on July 22nd. That's a six fifteen PM central time start. And on Sunday, We'll have another watch party along with our friends from the 108 on playback.tv slash Sox Machine. Lucas Giolito will make that start as we talked about at the beginning part of the show. We're hoping for a bounce back for Lucas Giolito. That'll be pretty important for his trade market just to see if teams get excited if he does pitch well and decide to pull the trigger and make a move before Giolito makes another start, which will be at home and that'll be his last probable start before the trade deadline. And of course, we'll be recapping that game between uh, the series, I should say, between the White Sox and the Twins on Monday, Sox Machine Podcast. We'll also, again, see if there's any trades that are made. The market has been incredibly slow around the league. Hopefully we get some type of activity. Baltimore traded for a reliever from Oakland. Uh, I did see that. Um, mm-hmm. but, uh, again, not a whole lot. The, the hot stove is lukewarm at the moment. So hopefully there's some more activity so we have something exciting to talk about. And, of course, we'll preview that Crosstown series between the Chicago White Sox and the Chicago Cubs, which I'm thinking the Cubs are going to be selling too. So that adds some intrigue for that two-game series. Hug watch. Yes, hug watch. That's what, that's what people pay the big bucks for, to go to Guarantee Ray Field for the Cubs-White Sox games. Drink a lot of beer. Watch some fights, hug watch. Those are the three big things <laughs> for Cubs White Sox games. But 
that will do it for this episode of Sox Machine Live. Thank you guys so much, especially for those that watch the live stream on youtube.com slash Machine. If you do get a chance to watch any of our videos, please subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Machine. We're on Twitter. You can follow us on Twitter. We're at Machine. You can follow me on Twitter at Machine underscore Josh. Those are also our Instagram handles and our threads. So if you're into threads, we're on threads. You can follow us at the that handle as well. If you don't get a chance to watch Sox Machine Live as far as the video, or if you just want to hear our voices and not see our faces, I don't blame you. You can listen to the podcast and subscribe to the Sox Machine Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts such as Spotify and Apple Music. If you enjoy our show and want more, you can get more by becoming a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash Machine, where Patreon supporters get exclusive content, ad-free versions of both the website and the podcast and when we have new socks machine swag like the iheart wild pitch offense shirts the first ones to receive it monthly plans start at two dollars or you can save with an annual subscription again sign up at patreon.com slash socks machine socks machine live is a production of SoxMachine.com. you're on for all things chicago white Sox baseball and part of the blue wire podcast network alongside jim margulis i'm josh nelson thanks for watching and listening Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.